Unfucking the Republic is brought to you by Sam C., Cringy, Cindy S., and Corey S., Unfucking Insane Level members of the show. I'm the show's producer, 99, and I'd like to welcome you back to part two of Libertarians Are Exhausting. We'll give a quick recap of part one, then dive right into it to see if we can understand in practical terms what it means to be a libertarian and look for common ground with the progressive movement in the United States. Some quick housekeeping as reminders before we start. For listeners with auditory processing issues or ones who just prefer no background music, you'll find a link in show notes to a musicless feed. And to read the essays from our episodes with complete sourcing and resources, you can join our Substack for free at unftr.substack.com. These are part of our commitment to accessibility and to provide transparency and free access to the source material for the show. And with that, I'll hand it over to our host, Max. Thanks, 99. Ooh, yeah. Welcome back, unfuckers. It's good to cozy up with you on this chilly day here in New York. What the fuck are you doing? What is he doing? Uh, A listener wrote in that he had the sexiest voice in podcasting. Oh, my God. Hey, now. I don't know what you're talking about. This is just my normal voice. I can't help it if it comes across in a sexy way. Yeah, well, it doesn't. So let's just go. And if you keep that up, I'll make you sound like Alvin the Chipmunk. Okie doke. Hey, some of you might have gotten my email this week to check out the Newsbeat podcast episodes on MLK Jr., so hopefully you had a chance to check them out. And I want to welcome our new listeners from Straight White American Jesus to the show. We made a really great connection through the Mutual Admiration Society, and we've been talking to the hosts over there about collaborating further, so thrilled to share our audiences with one another. It's another great example of the ethos that Jay from Best of the Left has inspired over the 15-some-odd years that he's been doing his show that we're stronger together, and the purveyors of quality progressive shows should be supportive of one another. So, unfuckers, add straight white American Jesus to the growing list of shows that have been generous enough to support us and bring our audiences together. Now, here's the awkward part. We've got bottle fuckers from Best of the Left, Bottle, B-O-T-L, a name that 99 absolutely despises, Pack fuckers from David Packman, Pitch fuckers from Pitchfork Economics, So now we need to decide how our newfound straight white American Jesus fuckers should be referred to. And I mean, seems pretty obvious to me that... Nope, nope, absolutely not. Don't do it. Manny, cut to the intro. This is the story of a political pundit who looked at the world around him and just said, fuck it. Gives the middle finger to authority and says, kiss my ass. But instead of a revolution, he started a podcast. Just what the world needs. In part two today of Libertarians Are Exhausting, we're still talking freedom and liberty, economic freedom, personal liberty, and the next most important concept that we need to unpack, the rule of law. Let's get started. Life, liberty, and property. It's John Locke. These are the most important parts of this burgeoning and evolving ideology that, depending upon who you ask, either started with Lao Tzu in the 6th century BC China, Enlightenment thinker John Locke, or Leonard Reed in the 1950s. No matter one's preferred starting day or inspiration, libertarianism has come to mean many different things in modern times, and despite being a fringe political apparatus, those who claim it for their own have had a demonstrable impact on society, law, economics, and media. You see, politics is the mechanism that pulls the levers of sentiment and power. How we feel about the type of power structure we desire is made possible through political means, but political power is derived from three distinct places, economics, law, and culture. So if you can wrest control of these three things, then you can control a nation's politics. The forces behind libertarianism understand that perhaps better than anyone. Let's quickly recap part one, then we'll get to the heart of the episode where we reveal the masters of the libertarian universe, run through the silent 50-year coup executed by libertarian billionaires, study the concepts behind the rule of law, and break beyond the theoretical to look at libertarianism in practice. Then we'll bring it all home to identify some common ground between progressives and libertarians and offer what I believe to be the most important takeaway from studying libertarianism. But first, here's the recap. As a political party, libertarians are pretty new, having only formed in the early 1970s. The concept of libertarianism began to appear in earnest around the 1950s, but has come to mean several different things today. 
there are several ideological strains, including anarcho-capitalism, civil libertarianism, classical liberalism, fiscal libertarianism, geolibertarianism, libertarian socialism, minarchism, neolibertarianism, objectivism, and paleo-libertarianism. So if you're arguing with a libertarian who can't answer what kind of libertarian they are, you're wasting your fucking time. Hey, give credit where credit is due that the Libertarian Party has successfully gotten onto the ballot in 35 states. Although, since Ron Paul, they haven't really had much to brag about. True, but we'll talk about why that doesn't even matter. We told you a story about the life and times of James Buchanan, a Southern economist so upset with the desegregation of schools that he devoted his entire life to constructing a new ideology we now know as the modern American version of libertarianism. Then we deconstructed some of the pillars behind libertarian's theoretical framework as written by one of its head cheerleaders, David Bowes. UNFTR. Chapter four, Masters of the Libertarian Universe. In part one, we played a couple of clips from former Congressman and presidential hopeful Ron Paul, who was for many people the first real public face of libertarianism. I characterize him as such because the concepts behind libertarianism were largely academic before Paul made a splash in the 2008 campaign. As we mentioned, he'd run before in 1988 as a libertarian in almost complete obscurity, but it was his bid on the Republican line that introduced his ideas to millions beyond academia and the Beltway. Since his last run in 2012, the Libertarian Party has grown, but mostly on the state level. In terms of big-time politics like presidential campaigns, They've almost conceded that the party has no real place in the conversation. We'll talk about why I think this is deliberate and the masters of the party really don't give a shit in a bit. But if you need some clear evidence that they've given up, here's the last guy they put their money on. Similar to Rick Perry's oops moment we played last week, here's libertarian candidate and face of the party Gary Johnson to illustrate how far the apple fell from Ron Paul's tree. What would you do if you were elected about Aleppo? About Aleppo. And what is Aleppo? You're kidding. No. Aleppo is in Syria. It's the, uh, it's the epicenter of the refugee crisis. Okay, got it. Got it. Okay. What, what is, is Aleppo? Aleppo? Became a pretty popular phrase during the campaign to mean, I don't know what the fuck I'm talking about. Here's Johnson and his running mate, William Weld, being given an opportunity at redemption, sort of, in a Chris Matthews interview where he's asked to name his favorite foreign leader. Canada, Mexico, Europe over there, uh, Asia, South America, Africa, name a foreign leader that you respect. I guess I'm having an Aleppo moment in the former former president of Mexico. But I'm giving you the whole I world. Know, I know, I know. Anybody I know. in the world you like, anybody, pick any leader. The former president now, of Mexico. Which one? I'm, I'm having a brain. I'm well, name brain anybody. Fog. I know I'm pounding this into the ground, but I can't help myself. Here's Johnson attempting to define his tax policy in an interview with The Guardian. Um, look, we're not getting elected king or dictator. Um, if Congress passes tax reduction, tax simplification, look, I, I, I sign on to it. But I also recognize that government picks winners and losers, that crony capitalism is alive and well. And uh, having been governor, you know, I vetoed a lot of legislation that was going to give unfair advantage to companies that already had unfair advantage. Okay, okay. I can dig this, actually. I mean, he didn't really answer the question, but he did talk about crony capitalism, a big bugaboo of libertarians, and he mentioned stripping away some of the gifts and advantages given to big business. But what about that tax policy, Gare? But that's not your tax policy, is it? I mean, that, it, your tax policy is to... Abolish income tax, abolish corporation could, if, tax, if, and if abolish could, the IRS. If I could wave a magic wand, uh, I would eliminate income tax, corporate tax, and I would replace it with one federal consumption tax. I put the fair tax out there as a template for how to dot the I's and cross the T's to accomplish one federal consumption tax. I'm pretty versed on the consumption tax, on the fair tax, and how they actually accomplish things like uh, that it is regressive, for example. Um, okay. Well, see, I'm not sure if Gary totally understands the idea of regressive here, but at least we know that he's in favor of abolishing income tax and the IRS altogether and having one consumption tax to finance the government. This, by the way, is regressive and a horrible fucking idea, but at least we're getting somewhere. Let's see how Gary responds to some polite British pushback. I mean, I, I've looked and searched for any credible economist who would think 
it's sensible to abolish income tax, abolish the IRS, abolish corporation tax and replace it with effectively one large sales tax and think that makes sense. Well, uh, like I say, we have a difference of opinion. I'm not saying that you and I disagree. I'm saying most of the world's major economists disagree with you. Look, I, I don't want to argue. I don't want to argue, really. But you, it's not a question of arguing. Look, I came out for the legalization of marijuana. Let me just use that as an example. And I will tell you that I had people in my face for years and years and years talking about how stupid and how idiotic it was that we should allow marijuana to be legal. But that's, what's that got to do with your tax policy? It's leadership. It is leadership. Just legalize weed and everything will be okay. It's called leadership, you fucking limey bastard. That's my policy. Weed for everyone, then no one will give a fuck about anything. Oh, Gary Johnson. Lighten up, Francis. <laughs> so Ron Paul was a little too weird, and this guy was a complete fucking buffoon. But the real masters of libertarianism don't give a shit about putting up a credible candidate to be the face of the party on a presidential level. After all, who needs a figurehead when you literally control the mechanisms of power and direct policy from the bottom up? Still, pawns are useful in the dangerous game the masters are playing. Kings and pawns, Marshal. Emperors and fools. And so we have our fools and our pawns. Apart from people like Gary Johnson and Ron Paul, there are some notable figures who publicly identify as libertarians, like Clint Eastwood, Kurt Russell, Trey Parker, and Matt Stone. Then there are the wackos, like recently deceased John McAfee, intellectually bankrupt reporter John Stossel, former judge and Fox analyst Andrew Napolitano, and billionaire douchebags like Peter Thiel and the DeVos family members. Even David Bowes of Cato and libertarian favorite creep Ted Cruz are just pawns in the master's game. The brains, the mad scientists behind this Frankenism. Truly, you have a dizzying intellect. Of course, we have to start with James Buchanan, the subject of our story in part one. So offended was this racist cocknoggin that he set out to formulate an entire political and economic strategy that would undermine the tyrannical forces of a government attempting to provide equitable access to schooling. While Buchanan was a trained economist, he was also truly one of the ideological founders of modern American libertarianism. In terms of transcending the boundaries of vocation, I think it also should be said that Uncle Fucknipple was a seminal figure in the formulation of libertarianism. Milton Friedman's impact went well beyond the university setting and can be found in foreign policy, consumer advocacy, public education, and so much more. There are other lesser-known figures that played a prominent role in formulating the doctrine of libertarianism, such as Robert Nozick, a Harvard philosopher whom Bose credits as giving libertarianism, quote, a major boost in scholarly respect. Nozick published Anarchy, State, and Utopia in 1974 to argue for something that he called the minimal state, in which the government is the only entity permitted to use force, but only to protect liberty and property and to provide policing. Any intervention into private affairs or the sacrosanct markets should be considered a violation of rights. And what is Aleppo? Then there's Richard Fink. I cannot think of a name more aptly suited than Dick Fink to describe this guy. Well played, Mama Fink. As a young man, this asshat won over Charles Koch and got him to fund a program at Rutgers to teach the value of Austrian economics. As Jane Mayer writes in Dark Money, with the Kochs behind him, Fink, quote, drew up a practical blueprint called the structure of social change, end quote. And for anyone who ever thinks that maybe we're reading too far into the intent of these fucking douchebags, we don't really have to guess. As Fink later described it in a talk that he gave, this plan laid out a three-phase takeover of American politics. The first phase required, quote, an investment in intellectuals whose ideas would serve as the raw products. The second required an investment in think tanks that would turn the ideas into marketable policies. And the third phase required the subsidization of citizens groups that would, along with special interests, pressure elected officials to implement the policies, end quote. And the last of the Blohicans worth mentioning here is none other than Ayn Rand. The little chain-smoking Russian gnome who wrote Atlas Shrugged and the Fountainhead continues to inspire libertarians to this day, from Paul Ryan and Ted Cruz, who claimed to be devotees of Rand when they took over the Republican House and Senate, to Alan Greenspan, who sent a giant dollar-sign-shaped wreath of flowers to her funeral. 
Rand's fiction has had an outsized impact on stupid white men for decades. Before we move on to the money behind the madness, it's important to note that libertarians would credit these people as important, but are more convinced that the true ideological heroes of the movement are Thomas Jefferson, Adam Smith, John Locke, David Hume, and Thomas Paine. Some even claim Aristotle. But these are convenient fantasies that rely on liberal and selective interpretations from otherwise voluminous works from these men. Anyway, philosophies and strategies are nothing without the money to put them to work in a system. So let's look at the moneyed interests that brought these ideas to life and put them to work tearing apart our democracy, shall we? The Money, the network of wealthy funders that set the ideas in motion. This country, you've got to make the money first. Then when you get the money, you get the power. Then when you get the power, then you get the woman. Since being outed by Jane Mayer, the most obvious and now notable of the moneyed libertarian elite are without question the Koch brothers. Before deciding to slink back behind the scenes and take over the Republican Party from within, the younger Koch brother David was the vice presidential candidate on the libertarian ticket in 1980. As the New Republic remarked, quote, even by contemporary standards, the 1980 Libertarian Party platform was extreme. It called for the abolition of a wide swath of federal agencies, including the Food and Drug Administration, the Department of Energy, the Environmental Protection Agency, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, the Federal Aviation Administration, the Bureau of Land Management, the Federal Election Commission, the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco and Firearms, the Federal Trade Commission, and all government agencies concerned with transportation. It railed against campaign finance and consumer protection laws, the Occupational Safety and Health Act, any regulations of the firearm industry, including tear gas, and government intervention in labor negotiations. And the platform demanded the repeal of all taxation and sought amnesty for those convicted of tax resistance, end quote. Jesus. The Kochs would learn from their bruising experience of a national campaign that the country, A, wasn't ready for these ideas, and B, electoral politics wasn't for them. Though they had already begun seeding programs in academia and forming well-funded think tanks, they went into high gear after this experience and created their now well-documented network of public policy groups designed to undermine public opinion on a range of issues and to indoctrinate a new breed of politician wholly dedicated to gutting the structures of government that stood in the way of their continued accumulation of wealth and influence. Richard Mellon Scaife was another important figure behind the movement. The heir to a banking, oil, and aluminum family, billionaire Scaife would be referred to by the Washington Post as a funding father to the right, and that he was. Let's take a listen to a bit of a eulogy given to Scaife by one of the great Republican presidents of the modern era. Dick Scaife was an old-fashioned conservative in the sense that he was deeply libertarian. He believed in limited government, a strong defense, individual liberties, it led into some unusual positions given the development of conservatism over the last 20 years. Just a reminder on fuckers that the halls of power are narrow. And no, calling Clinton a Republican was not a verbal gaffe. But we're saving the Clintons for another day. Scaife was also close friends with a few other titans such as John Olin, the chemical engineer turned industrialist who took over his father's company. The Olin Corporation was dedicated to all things kind and humane, like pharmaceuticals, cigarette paper, Winchester rifles, rocket fuel, blasting powder for coal mines, munitions, and 20% of the nation's stock of DDT. Not content with these incredible advancements for humanity, he would go on to found the John M. Olin Foundation. According to Mayer, the foundation was, quote, an ambitious offensive to reorient the political slant of American higher education to the right. By the time the Olin Foundation spent itself out of existence in 2005, as called for in its founder's will, it had spent about half of its total assets of $370 million bankrolling the promotion of free market ideology and other conservative ideas on the country's campuses, end quote. Or how about Joseph Coors, grandson of Coors founder Adolf? Joseph Coors was another founding member of the Heritage Foundation and also hated liberal academic elite. Plus, it was widely known that the Coors family hated unions and black people and pretty much anyone that wasn't white and conservative. Oh, and they were members of the John Birch Society way after that was acceptable as if it ever was. It wasn't. 
Okay. Well, Joe Kors himself was a huge supporter of Goldwater and Reagan and could be counted on to fund a whole bunch of under-the-radar initiatives like buying a drug plane for Oliver North, working with James Watton and Gorsuch, briefly heads of the Interior and EPA respectively under Reagan, to try and dismantle environmental regulations from inside the agencies. And if you're saying to yourself, hey, Gorsuch, that's familiar, can it be? Yep, that's Neil's mom. Friends of Joe Kors, Dick Scaife, and the Cokes also included Dick DeVos. Oh. That's right. The DeVos family built their fortune from multi-level marketing company Amway and dedicated their efforts to destroying higher education, unions, and campaign finance laws. Dick married Betsy, Betsy Prince, the sister of famed mercenary Eric Prince and daughter of Edgar, wealthy industrialist and Christian fundamentalist. God, what a group of people. I love them all so much. More current fuckheads include familiar names like Robert Mercer and his she-devil daughter, Rebecca. Check out our tribute to her from last year if you haven't heard of her. Insufferable billionaire twat Peter Thiel and his buddy Joe Lonsdale. This dynamic duo founded Palantir, the CIA-friendly, scandal-laden data mining firm that absolutely 100% has every piece of digital information about you. And who can ignore our buddy and inspiration behind the FRM hashtag good old Rupert Murdoch? Again, we dedicated an entire episode to him if you want to check it out, but his exploits are the most public of all, so no need to rehash. Lastly, on the quieter side, we have Jeff Yass, and all I can think of is Yass Queen, who spent $31 million on libertarian political causes and campaigns in 2019 and 2020. While he didn't donate to either presidential candidate in the 2020 election, he did support two conservative super PACs dedicated to free markets and undermining democracy. And what is Aleppo? The Economists, the academic justification for libertarian behavior. We're no longer chasing the almighty dollar. Our ideals are higher than profit. Obviously, we've beaten Milton Friedman into the ground. But we can't get into this section without acknowledging Friedman's enormous commitment and contribution to the libertarian cause. His words have inspired legions of students and policymakers who take his word as gospel and credit him for undoing the work of John Maynard Keynes. School choice, deregulation, free trade, balanced budgets, decriminalization of white-collar crimes, pick a major economic issue of the past 50 years, and you'll find Milton Friedman at the heart of it. A diminutive but fiery polemicist, Friedman would achieve star status and become the face of the Chicago school. For some reason, Friedman's appeal transcended politics and academia. We've argued since this show started that this unlikely hero of libertarianism lived entirely in a theoretical world and promoted impossible policies that ignored every fundamental flaw of human nature. Free markets could fix everything. Racism? Free markets can cure it. Underperforming schools? Free markets, baby. Totalitarianism got you down? Free markets to the rescue. No matter the situation, Friedman could make a cogent, if not aggressive case, that the free market was the answer to all of humanity's issues. And despite never being able to present any hard evidence to support his theories because they literally can't fucking exist in the real world, he remains the patron economic saint of libertarians alongside Mont Pelerin founder Friedrich Hayek. We've covered a few of Friedman's colleagues from the Chicago School, such as his mentor, Aaron Director, and his buddy, George Stigler, who popularized radical right-wing interpretations of Adam Smith. Three lesser-known but extremely important Chicago boys were Gary Becker, Ronald Coase, and Richard Posner. The three of them were responsible for bringing the concept of free markets into the carceral sphere to accomplish two extremely disturbing initiatives. One was to decriminalize white-collar crime, and the other was to promote the privatization of the prison system. Only Posner would have a change of heart about the work of the Chicago Boys later in life. As Bernard Harcourt writes in The Illusion of Free Markets, quote, After many decades of expressly embracing free market ideology, Posner began to claim in 2009 that he'd been a Keynesian all along. On the heels of the subprime mortgage debacle, Posner offered a Keynesian self-presentation writing that, quote, we need more active and intelligent government to keep our model of a capitalist economy from running off the rails. The movement to deregulate the financial industry went too far by exaggerating the resilience, the self-healing powers of laissez-faire capitalism 
probably the Chicago school should be retired, end quote, and end quote. There are so many others, particularly from the Chicago school, that are worth mentioning, but in the interest of time, let's end on good old Arthur Laffer, who illustrated the relationship between tax rates and tax revenue in what has become known as the Laffer Curve. His idea was, in order to stimulate economic growth, it was imperative to cut taxes. On his curve, he argued that if taxes are too high, it will discourage production and activity, and supply-side economics was born under Reagan. The fun fact about Laffer and his curve that we covered in a prior episode was that he literally drew his entire theory on a cocktail napkin and gave it to Dick Cheney at a party who then gave it to Donald Rumsfeld for safe fucking keeping. The lawyers, the so-called believers in the rule of law. Why the law? Because the law, my boy, puts us into everything. It's the ultimate backstage pass. It's the new priesthood, baby. Did you know there are more students in law school than there are lawyers walking the earth? We're coming out! Let's revisit Kurt Anderson from his book, Evil Geniuses, who perfectly encapsulates the role of the legal profession in furthering the mission of the big money donors behind the libertarian cause. Quote, they needed to colonize the legal community and reframe the law itself to make sure they kept getting their way. Instead of litigation almost entirely being used against them by antitrust enforcers and class action troublemakers, environmentalists and Ralph Nader's, they need to reshape fundamental American legal understandings to make it a toolbox they could use to accumulate more power and wealth for big business and the right over the long run. We've spoken before about the notorious Powell memo where Lewis Powell urged the corporate sector to fight back against liberalism and government outreach. Well, there's another memo that was just as influential in legal circles as the Powell memo was to business, written by a man named Michael Horowitz. Horowitz was an attorney who was commissioned to write a thesis about how to reverse the trend of liberalism in the courts. According to Anderson, Horowitz produced a 100-plus page memo that, among other ideas, argued for the creation of, quote, a network of top students and young graduates from the top law schools. It should appear more idealistic and philosophical and independent. Instead of the occasional episodic tactical victories in lawsuits, it needed permanent, large-scale changes in the legal academy and law and jurisprudence, switching from a focus on courts and legislatures to law schools and bar associates, end quote. Shortly thereafter, Horowitz's dream would become a reality with the formation of the Federalist Society. And to give you an idea of the caliber of recruits to the society, the Chicago chapter was advised by a gentleman named Antonin Scalia. As Anderson writes, at the birth, the Federalist Society got funding from the new standard roster of right-wing billionaires foundations, Scaife, Olin, Bradley, and the Kochs. In 1987, Brett Kavanaugh entered Yale Law School, where he joined its Federalist Society chapter. And a year later, Neil Gorsuch started at Harvard Law School and became a member. Federalist advisor and conservative icon Antonin Scalia would ultimately go on to serve on the Supreme Court, appointed by Reagan. But that appointment was originally designated for another famous libertarian legal mind named Robert Bork. Unfuckers of a certain age will remember the Bork hearings, as he was eventually put up as a nominee, but in a dying gasp of liberalism, Congress shocked the Reagan administration and denied Bork the opportunity to serve on the nation's highest court. Even the Republicans in the system at the time knew that Bork was an ideologue and that he would be a far-right activist jurist. By denying Bork a seat on the Supreme Court, they effectively turned him into a martyr for the libertarian cause. As it was, he was an intellectual darling of the right-leaning libertarians, and he's largely credited as the father of originalist thinking, an idea that pervades the right in today's judiciary. Like so many others, Bork fell under the influence of legal and economic scholars at UChicago and cut his teeth arguing against the Civil Rights Act. And that, my dear unfuckers, is what I'm talking about when we talk about the long game. And what is Aleppo? UNFTR. Chapter 5. The 50-Year Libertarian Coup. So libertarians have a hard time winning big elections. 
This might lead you to believe that perhaps it's still fringe, not ready for prime time. And if electoral politics was the litmus test for power, then maybe you'd be right. But when you consider how many of their policies have made it into the mainstream, then perhaps we're judging success incorrectly. And to be clear, I'm talking about the nouveau American style, fiscal anarcho-capitalist, minarchist, neoliberal objectivist cauldron of bullshit, not the Chomsky libertarian socialist or well-reasoned laissez-faire proponent with whom one can have a rational discourse. If nothing else, what we've attempted to communicate through these episodes is that any discussion of economic, social, or political libertarianism is impossible without going through the various forms that this can take and how each one was influenced by whom and why. If you want to talk ideology, then you have to address the core rationale behind it, the thinkers who inspired it, and the circumstances under which it was conceived. Doing this allows us to look more closely at someone like Adam Smith, who can just as easily be claimed by libertarians as he can by conservatives and socialists alike. It's all about context. It's about perspective and experience. That's why the role of the think tank has been so powerful in building the case for libertarianism. See, we sometimes casually refer to some of these institutions as conservative, but that's mostly a misnomer. They're libertarian. The economic theory behind them, the motivation of the funding class, and the policy outputs they produce in governance and in the legal system are mostly libertarian in design. And as we covered early in our propaganda episodes, their concepts are filtered directly to conservative outlets like Fox, Sinclair Broadcasting, independent podcasts, and far-right blogs, which are then circulated through social media to ensure that this information is all that you hear in your echo chamber. The whole gambit has been so successful that the rank-and-file voters who pull the lever for Republicans or self-identify as Libertarian have been so indoctrinated into the language of American Libertarian policies as defined by the masters of this bizarre universe that they actually think they're underdogs. They think that they're under attack from a tyrannical left-wing government and a liberal media. To make matters worse, Christian nationalists have hidden inside the Republican Party like soldiers in a Trojan horse and have aligned with this form of libertarianism that couldn't be further from the teachings of Jesus Christ. When you isolate their ideas and examine them through a policy lens one by one, they're literally the most unchristian things that you can think of. Companies should be free to pollute and hide the chemicals they use from the public. We're a proud nation of immigrants, the melting pot. Also, no one else is allowed in. Taxes shouldn't be levied on wealthy individuals who make money from our labor. Besides, they already hide profits illegally in offshore accounts, so just fuck off and leave them alone already. Social security should be managed by private financial institutions, the same ones that brought you the financial crisis and a recession every seven years. Medicare and Medicaid are forms of tyranny. Remember that dying is the ultimate expression of liberty. Minimum wage suppresses wages. Minimum wage suppresses wages. I'll just leave that there. How the fuck does this happen? How does a nation with a proud blue-collar working class that sneers at the rich, fights communism, and defeats fascism fall for this bullshit? It's not your fault. I know. It's just that, you know, we used to fight for shit. For civil rights, marriage equality, the elderly. When did we decide to say, fuck everyone, let the billionaires have their way? How did we get to a place where those who struggle stand behind the people whose feet are literally standing on their necks? It's not your fault. I know, but somebody help me here. When they plastered posters of Uncle Sam pointing his finger and saying, we need you, it was the working class that answered the call. When FDR stood up for the poor and was called a traitor to his class, he didn't back down. He got angry and built a social safety net structure. Hell, even Nixon defended the environment and demanded the corporations stop polluting the air, the land, and the water. How do we let it be that a guy like Nixon would be considered a fucking liberal today? It's not your fault. I know. <laughs> Don't fuck with me, unfuckers. Not you. <sighs> While Mr. Basic White Guy Movie Reference collects himself, let's get back on track and explain. Introducing the American Legislative Exchange Council, also known as ALEC. Sorry, guys. <clears throat> yes, ALEC. ALEC is known for promoting the Castle Doctrine, more commonly known as the Stand Your Ground Law, protecting companies from having to disclose toxic elements used in hydraulic fracturing known as fracking, partnering with funders like the Bradley Foundation to, quote, dismantle and defund unions, end quote, helping states to outlaw sanctuary cities and finding ways for states to opt out of federal climate change laws. 
Then, of course, there's the Heritage Foundation, the critical Koch-funded think tank that has a few notches on its belt as well. Notches like the Strategic Defense Initiative, the Reagan tax cuts, NAFTA, climate change denial policies, school choice, vouchers, and charter schools. They're also experts at fomenting war with Islamic states. Oh, and even though they originally crafted the plan known as Obamacare for then-Republican Governor Mitt Romney as a way to punish immigrants and poor people who used the emergency room when they were sick, they did an about-face when a black Democratic president supported it and have dedicated themselves to destroying their own invention ever since. The Heritage Foundation was so successful during the Reagan years, one of the co-founders bragged that the administration had adopted 775 of the Heritage proposals. The Cato Institute, known for preventing increases to the minimum wage, all while pushing legislation to abolish it altogether, along with parental leave. Citizens for a Sound Economy. Another Koch brother invention first chaired by Ron Paul and devoted to defanging antitrust legislation to allow large corporations to get as big as they please, even though one of the core tenets of libertarianism was promoting free trade through tight competition fostered by, you guessed it, antitrust regulation. Mercatus Center. The think tank aligned with the dick bags at George Mason, the fake college that started in a fucking strip mall and exists only to indoctrinate students into the free market ideology. The Federalist Society. Jerk off lawyers that gave us Scalia, Gorsuch, and Kavanaugh. And on. And on. And on. And on. And what is Aleppo? Chapter 6 Practical Application and Common Ground. The rights to your own body, freedom from censorship the right to privacy, the right to love who you love. Abortion is a personal choice. Parents and children have rights. Legalizing drugs, gambling, and sexual services, opposition to the death penalty. The right to bear arms with no prohibitions or regulation. These are the stated tenets of personal liberty on the Libertarian Party platform. The military should exist for national defense purposes only. The security and surveillance state should be dismantled. Our foreign policy should be used to promote peace and not provoke. We should never restrict the freedom of movement for people or capital. Human rights are natural and cannot be infringed upon regardless of race, religion, creed, or sexual orientation. Financing of elections should be individual and not tax financed. Gerrymandering and restricting access to the ballot should be prohibited. These are the stated tenets of securing liberty on the Libertarian Party platform. Now, the third pillar relates to economic freedom. But before we get there, I think it's helpful to acknowledge that the vast majority, not all, but the vast majority of the aforementioned principles are fairly well aligned with progressivism. Not all. But this is where we need to begin to form alliances and work together to recognize that common ground here exists and can be built upon. Having said that, the third pillar is where things begin to fall apart in this happy horseshit alliance. The government should be absent from all consensual contracts and never impede the free trade among nations and individuals unless it involves the settlement of a dispute related to force or fraud. Private landowners and conservation groups have a higher vested interest in protecting the environment than the government and should therefore be in control of our natural resources. The government shouldn't subsidize any form of energy. The government should not incur debt. We should eliminate the defined pension systems and the mandatory union membership for government employees. Markets and financial institutions must be deregulated, which also means they should not qualify for bailouts. The same goes for student debt. The state should not grant licenses for any trade, decriminalize sex work, eliminate government arbitration, mandatory wage minimums, or government-mandated benefits. Education and healthcare should be determined by market forces. Retirement should be up to the individual, and therefore Social Security must be phased out. Another curious aspect that deserves its own unfucking is the demand to do away with the Federal Reserve. And while it's not in their stated platform, it's very much a part of most of the libertarian literature and something that we'll return to another day. But for now, I want to focus on those three pillars of the libertarian platform. If the political discourse between progressives and libertarians was limited to the pillars of personal freedom and securing liberty, there would be great alignment between us, leaving room for disputes over hard issues like gun control. But I had the sense that it was all designed that way, that the brilliance of the brains behind libertarianism, the perverted nouveau American version, was to create compelling personal freedom arguments that side with the common citizen, then link them 
to the economic pillars as though they're related. Economics is squishy and difficult. So if the same purveyors of personal truths that clearly resonate with you are selling a story that these economic freedoms are essentially the same and wholly aligned with this ethos, then it's easier to buy into, right? For any con to work, the majority of it has to be rooted in truth and tangible concepts so that you're more willing to believe the parts on their own that would normally be unbelievable. What we've attempted to demonstrate since the very first episode is that these economic concepts are wholly unnatural, nonsensical, evil almost. All it accomplishes is to replace the perceived tyranny of the government with the absolute tyranny of faceless and all-powerful corporations, a concept that we've covered before referred to as inverted totalitarianism. It's why all of their propaganda and lobbying efforts have gone into the economic pillar and not the others. You don't see a public outcry to end the death penalty, reduce the military budget, legalize sex work, and dismantle the security and surveillance apparatus. There's no energy there. There's no money there. Peter Thiel, for example, claims to stand for these things, and yet he founded Palantir to aggregate the personal data of every living person. Libertarian economic thinking is all sleight of hand. Bose, for example, likes to tout supermarkets as the ultimate expression of liberty, freedom to choose whatever cereal and fruit that you like. But as we uncovered in our vegan episode, this very system has reduced the varieties of food types from 7,000 to 150 that we consume over the past 50 years. That's not food choice. That is food tyranny. That's sleight of hand. When we covered the great economists of the past 250 years, we've repeatedly proven that the concepts of free markets are also anything but, particularly those of the neo-libertarian strain who are proponents of military force to achieve our economic interests. Moreover, it's clear that the elite power brokers behind libertarianism aren't actually interested in governing as a party because they would have to campaign on these things that they don't really want or care about. That's part of the brilliance as I perceive it from the outside. With no real ballot or electoral initiatives, they don't have to worry about the heavy lift of building a ground game in a party and finding consensus among and between the disparate tentacles of a party. No compromise is necessary so long as the core elements of each libertarian strain is a comfortable platitude like freedom, liberty, and individualism. You got a Confederate flag? Congrats, you might be a libertarian. You got a don't tread on me flag? Congrats, you might be a libertarian. Got a Trump 2024 flag? You might be a libertarian. Think markets should be free, that your property is your own, and government should stay out of your bedroom? You might be a libertarian. Do you back the blue? Think critical race theory is racist? Hate the Russians one day, then admire them the next? Want to speed down the highway with no registration sticker and cut your seatbelt and protest because it's your right to smash into a pole and crash through the windshield? Congrats! You might be a libertarian. In claiming nothing and everything at the same time, they're able to turn their party into a Jeff Foxworthy punchline. It's fucking genius. Once you whip people into a frenzy about the things they take personally and convince them that environmental regulations, social security, healthcare, and public education are also forms of tyranny, it starts to make sense. Except that it doesn't. Create economic policies that benefit only a few wealthy individuals and sell it through the lens of freedom and liberty? Anything else is tyrannical and here's the white paper to prove it? And here's our media-trained expert ready to sell it to you on our privately-owned media outlet to help shift the Overton window? Adam Smith believed that unfettered capitalism unleashed the worst natural instincts of humankind and should therefore be carefully regulated, and that excess capital in the system, i.e. profits, should be reasonably apportioned through the government as a conduit to fund the arts, the sciences, and protect the weakest members of society. That's... Adam Smith. And the bottom line is there is no Libertarian Party because the assholes who created the economic framework for the party never wanted one. Once they figured out that it was easier to take over a party than to create one, it became a game. One that they're winning handily. Remember back to the start of the last episode that this idea of libertarianism in America all began when James Buchanan was offended by the desegregation of schools in America. That was their spark. Their big fucking moment. The moment that illuminated this movement and set us on this course. And the billionaires whose know-nothing and John Birch efforts had previously failed suddenly found a new, more legitimate way to infiltrate the system with ideas that would further their accumulation of wealth and power at the expense of 
the misguided souls that would assist them in doing so, all to make America great again. Hopefully, those of you that have expressed frustration at my unwillingness to consider building a third party in this country finally understand why. The Republican Party wasn't taken over by conservatives. Far from it. It was taken over by libertarian billionaires. They did it without firing a shot or a ballot initiative. They won it with ideas. So the way I see it is we're nearly two-thirds of the way there. So let's steal the billionaire playbook and turn it against them. It's time to occupy the soulless cadaver of the Democratic Party and populate it with the true concepts of liberty and freedom. We want the same things. Occupy the Democratic Party. Recruit a libertarian. Here endeth the lesson. And what is Aleppo? The show notes Calling out listeners one by one Show notes Bloopers and thank yous, it's so much fun Hey, welcome into show notes. Just me and 99 hanging on our screens, not in the same room, still together. Can't wait for that day to come back. How you doing, 99? I'm good. How are you? I'll be good if we convince some libertarians to come over into the into the fold. I think we're already halfway there. Or two thirds. Mm. Do you know how many members we have at this very moment that we're recording? Uh, progressive members. How many members <laughs> of the show? Mm-hmm. How many? Uh, Tell the people. 97. Nope. 98. Close. We got 99 members. That's me. Yeah. Isn't that neat? Yeah. 99 people. I'll be happy when we have 666 members. Um, well, <laughs> you just went super dark on everybody. Um, Why? Why not? Okay. Like, how about a thousand instead? Like, why 666? Because it's 666. Let's move on. The book love and the pod love is the same from last week, although I added back in The Illusion of Free Markets by Bernard Harcourt. That book is so fucking good. Oh, and Evil Geniuses by Kurt Anderson. We went back into that one, too. As far as the pod love, like you heard up top, we've been hanging out with the straight white American Jesus guys. We did promote Newsbeat in the MLK episode this week. Pitchfork Economics has always been a great you know, partner of ours. Check out Economic Update with Rick Wolf. If you're a subscriber or on Patreon, you can go through the entire catalog, and he has a ton of stuff debunking the uh, Chicago School and Libertarian strain of thinking. And, of course, we just want to give a, an always thank you and shout out to Best of the Left and David Packman for helping put us on the map. We're going to be doing some more of this, by the way. You know, when we connect with these shows, it's because... They are shows and people that 99 and I kind of admire that we, you know, listen to. It's nobody that we're reaching out to. It's like, hey, we should promote one another without like vetting the ideas. So we're reaching out to a number of other shows to see if they want to partner up and in cross promoting one another to try and bring our audiences together. So take a look for those. But know that 99 and I are vetting each one of them to make sure that they are wholly aligned. And with that. I got a really tired voice right now because that was a long ass motherfucking script. Do you mind uh, kicking us off here with coffee donations? Yeah, of course. So first up, Bookstore Kim bought five coffees and Bookstore Kim is asking about the whole bean coffee. We have a lot of coffee issues right now. It's all a good thing because it's we've got a backup of production. We have the new blend coming out. We've got the whole beans coming out for each one. We've got bags on back order, and um, we're we're pressing up against it. But we hope that all of this stuff is going to filter out over the next couple of weeks, and we'll be we'll be rocking and rolling because we also have a pretty pretty cool announcement coming up for our top level, our insane level members of the show as well, which we teased before. But uh, we're going to reach out to uh, the current ones and then tell everybody what uh, the insane members are going to get. But that's for later. So JT bought five coffees and said, "You guys are doing great stuff." Cindy C is now a member, said these are a few of my favorite things, learning, laughing, and colorful language. Catrick is now a member and said, I love this pod. My friend Bookstore Kim recommended this to me as I was perusing the aisles of this store. God, I love her. Yeah, that's really cool. She's so great. I, I want to go there so badly. I want to go up there. 
when all this nonsense is over and it's a little warmer in Vermont, you and I have to take a road trip and surprise Bookstore Kim. For sure. She won't recognize us, but... <laughs> no, of course not. <laughs> um, Brian L. is now a member. And then M. Kingsman is now a member. Sexiest voice in any podcast on the oh, planet. Uh, oh, I'm sorry. Is that where that came from? <laughs> uh, Lisa S. is now a member and said, no one else is making this kind of content. Shelby G. is now a member and said, my favorite podcast. And then Fari is now a member and said, an educational and funny political podcast. And that's it for our members this week. But when I say that's it, that's plenty. That's and a lot. Thank you. <laughs> Got us up to 99. Holy shit. You guys are making this whole thing a reality. I can't uh, can't believe it. I just Sometimes I get up and I'm just like, I cannot believe. Like a year ago, I think in January, what do we have? We, for the whole month, we had like 350 downloads. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> oh, it's crazy. You guys are the best. Uh, on Facebook... Cam J, who's a friend of the show, had some choice words about libertarians, namely run-of-the-mill right-wing motherfuckers who drink the Reagan era hating on government Kool-Aid, so antithetical to the concepts of we the people in a strong United States, which assuages them from any responsibility for the fails they voted and continue to vote for. But I digress. <laughs> um, now, Cam has the same issues with the self-identifying libertarians that don't scratch enough below the surface. So hopefully, hopefully... We did that justice to show that there there really is, as much as we fuck with people and we make fun of a lot of the people that started it, when you think about the fucking, ugh, I mean, could you have a worse, more evil roster of fuckheads that started this whole thing, right? From Buchanan and Koch's and the DeVos family and fucking Hitler Coors family and all. I mean, literally, it's like the worst people in America had a convention and said, how can we really fuck things up for everybody? And bing, we have this. But as long as you wrap it in freedom and liberty, it all sounds so great. God damn it. Anyway, uh, Tony M, libertarianism would never work. That's why no country has ever tried it successfully. You're right, Tony M. Uh, we got more feedback on uh, 99's vegan-inspired episode. Ricky M said, y'all did a great job on this episode. Spent a couple of years kind of weaning myself off meat. Know the feeling, Ricky? Oh, now working to live without dairy, which is a lot harder to do. I was saying the same thing to 99 just last week. She told me, shut the fuck up and figure it out. Uh, big thank you to this show for the extra motivation. And Jim M said a very good episode. The Economist has been writing articles about how important this is and how eating insects should be adopted by the West. Ugh, would 99 make an exception to her totally vegan rule for that? Hmm. <laughs> 99? I wouldn't. Number one, because I don't want to. And number two, I feel like it's just shifting the issue of like, now let's eat all our bugs. <laughs> and so then all of our, you know, all of the animals we don't eat, like smaller birds or lizards or frogs, now they don't have any any food and spiders will take over the world and I'll Ugh. be upset. So thanks, but no thanks, Jim M. What about eating spiders? Would you do that? No. Okay. I respect them. I understand the role they play in society, but they're not for me. They are. It's also why we're never going to take our our show to Australia, right? Yeah. I mean, they'll have to assure me it's like in a spider-proof building. I don't know that they can offer you those assurances. Well, then I'm not coming. Get us together, Australia. What happened over on Twitter? At Satuma shared our Uncle Gnome episode and said, I can't think of a comparable replacement to Chomsky who exhibits the same level of intellectual rigor, honesty, and principles. So many wannabes. Agreed. And then one Ben England tagged us in a tweet and said, The Chipotle third quarter revenue, net margin, and net profit were all up substantially. Fourth quarter announcement Feb 8th. Inflation is largely being caused by companies increasing margins. We are all paying for it. Yep. Can't say you're having supply chain issues and have your profits go up at the same time. Doesn't work that way. Those two things are not the same. Uh, on Instagram, Tim V wants us to put the AOC rap and Canada song online and suggested immigration as a future episode. Ooh, so, hey, Tim, that's so weird, because I did not see, you know, I'm not an Insta fella, so I didn't see this come in, but I was thinking the other day, 99, that we should, uh, that someday we'll have a really good, here's all of Tom McGovern's shit kind of episode that we could do like we did with the best of the skits. And as far as the uh, immigration episode, yes, and it is tentatively titled, well, <laughs> One was tentatively titled Of Our Own Doing and the other was Closing the Door Behind You. I don't know if that'll be a two-parter, but it certainly could be. 
But those are the two main themes. We have a few things mapped out on it, but uh, as you can imagine, another really, really, really big topic that we're trying to really find our lane on. But coming on the map. Over on email, we had some uh, leftover kudos for the vegan episode. Seamus, for example, said huge fan of the episode. I also heard Max say he and Manny should leave since everyone loves 99 the most. They do. And I agree 99 is awesome, but the trichotomy of the show is one of the best features. All right, Manny, you and I are rehired. It's We're going to stay with 99 so long as she allows us to. Fari J, or Fari J, asked if their dog can be vegan and wants to know if we have any ammo on debating with anti-vax COVID conspiracists. I feel like this is the moment that we actually spin off the 99 show. <laughs> well, to answer the first one, you might be able to answer the second one better. There's definitely competing theories, so I don't want to speak for everybody, but there are plenty of studies that have shown that dogs can be vegan. They make vegan dog food. I have a friend with a vegan dog, and she's the best dog in the world. And then ammo on debating with anti-vax COVID conspiracists. I don't know. As you all know, I, <laughs> I like to give up when I think people are too far gone because I just... At some point, it's not that I don't want to help them, but at some point, it's just not good for people's mental health. And some of these people you can't convince. But Max is much more meet them where they are. So maybe he has some advice. I don't have advice as much as I have um, maybe a different. I may or may not be a parent. I may or may not be a father. Were I a father and had I these experiences with children, one of the things that troubled me as a young father was the volume of approved vaccinations for children. And I remember taking home a list from the pediatrician that, you know, from zero to 18, there were something like 70 some odd approved vaccinations. And if you asked for them, your, your pediatrician would give you all of them heading up until you were 18 years old. And... You know, my question was always, that seems like a lot. I mean, I can understand the ones that eradicated diseases, but, you know, isn't building a natural immunity more important? And that would, these were all questions I think that all parents face and think about. There are people who don't just accept what is given to them from any community and look for their own anecdotal experiences and then their own research. I think that's a slippery slope when you try to do that with medicine. Because unless you go to medical school, unless you do the work, and unless you're actually in the field and you actually have the experiences that are right in front of you, you're not going to know. It's always going to be theoretical and anecdotal. So when somebody comes to me and says, I'm anti-vax, I get it. I'm not, but I do get it. As a parent, I understand. I'm anti-over-vax, and I think that there are too many fucking vaccinations on the market. And that's where this whole thing gets confused is that the pharmaceutical industry has fucked itself by being so for profit, by being so evil in the way that some of their medications are meted out. And by price gouging the American people, they created this distrust. If you want to place the blame anywhere, you are welcome to place it on the pharmaceutical companies because they fucked this thing from the beginning. So if you say to me, I've always been anti-vax, I'll meet you there and we'll talk about it. We'll talk about the eradication of diseases prior. We'll talk about eradicating diseases in other countries. We'll talk about the veracity of vaccinations for children and at what ages. Should there be more research into vaccinations writ large that we put into our children? Of fucking course. And then again, I'm not anti-vax. I am pro-asking questions, and I am certainly anti-big business and do not trust anything that comes from them. I do have more trust for the government that isn't bought, paid for, and lobbied by the private industry, though. But where this all got fucked, when the COVID vaccinations came out, in the beginning it was, oh my God, can we get a vaccine? And everybody was behind it, and Operation Warp Speed brought it through, and then it became entirely politicized. And then bad information got out there, bad actors got out there, and the whole thing dragged on too long. And where I think it gets fucked in this country is with anything that involves a mandate. We are a nation of fucking idiots who refuse to be told what to do. It's what I love about us, and it's what drives me nuts about us. If you tell somebody, here's a mask that's going to protect you, probably going to put it on. If you say, here's a mask, you have to wear it. They're going to go fuck yourself. Well, I want my freedoms. 
Freedom, liberty. We just spent two full episodes talking about why that is so inculcated into us as a people. We've been taught that we are all a nation of frontier cowboys. We're independent, the indomitable spirit of the independent, rugged, individualistic American. That's who we've been sold that we are. When in reality, we're just fucking sitting at home, you know, eating shitty food manufactured by horrible companies. Don't give a fuck about us. And the minute that anybody suggests that we are losing a personal freedom, we lose our fucking minds. That's a problem that we can work on. But I knew from the beginning that if they mandated anything, we weren't going to react well to it. So... I do meet people more where they are in answer to, you know, in a long answer to that question. And I do think you can believe that the pharmaceutical companies do not always have our best interests at heart and also accept that the government and these companies are working in our best interests right now to put a vaccine into the market that will reduce the fatality rate and the impact of the COVID-19 virus, of which... Nobody, unless you are a fucking scientist, a research professional in the medical community, or an epidemiologist, knows anything about. And that's the discussion that I will not have with people is when they try to tell me what a vaccine does or doesn't fucking do when they don't even know what RNA is. Because you know who doesn't know what RNA is? Me! So I'm not going to have that discussion. But all of the other stuff we can have, and we can have it on the merits, and we can still love one another when we have the discussion. No, I think you answered a lot of questions. Do you really not know what RNA stands for? No, I don't know what it is. I don't know what it stands for. I don't know what it does. And I don't understand it it in relation to the vaccine. Ribonucleic acid. I did not do well in biology. (laughs) Well. Or physics. Now you know. Or geometry. Or calculus. (laughs) Or, sorry. Anyway. Darcy M. said, Swaz, sent me your way. That's straight white American Jesus. At Brad's suggestion, started with prosperity doctrine, followed by the beatification of Ronald Reagan, and was hooked. Darcy, welcome over. Huge fans of Brad. Huge fans of that show. Looking forward to doing more with them. And she sent over a few other recommendations that we are definitely going to look into. So thank you for that. And Bobby McFucking D. was so tired of me butchering the my Irish accent. He made about seven or eight sound file tutorials on how to do an Irish accent, but each time I listened back to them, I felt like an idiot. Who am I to tell you what to do? But you know who you are? You are world-renowned author Bobby McBuckin' D. That's who you are, and you can tell me how to do an accent any day, brother. Elena S. said, I always learn something new from your podcast. We appreciate that. Uh, Nathan S. Hey, we have two Nathans. I've said this before. And they're both awesome. I did this, Nathan S. just become a member? Yeah, man. You're the best, dude. Appreciate you coming aboard. Uh, recommending a quick book I read over the holidays called Oh, the Republican Brain by Chris Mooney. Yes, yes, yes. I remember four months ago, you had an episode of how to meet people where they are, how to talk to ultra conservatives. This book has an interesting science behind it. Cool. Uh, yes, I will definitely check that out. It's funny because I kept referring to the libertarian episode before we put it out as uh, I think, you know, we're, the working title is The Libertarian Brain or The Libertarian Mind. And that's because it actually was the title of David Bose's book before I'd read it. But it obviously, you know, through osmosis has seeped in there. So this sounds like a good one. And I appreciate the recommendation. And Kevin uh, wrote in a, uh, a long and thoughtful email basically asking us about what, what we think about the complicity of the Democrats and whether it's by design. Well, you just heard us talk about the, uh, the the libertarian ideals infiltrating the Republican Party by design, excluding some of the things that you know would obviously help people, and including things that are appealing, like liberty and freedom of the personal kind and the security and surveillance state. So, do I think that a lot of what happens in the Democratic Party is by design? The complacency there, yeah, yeah, I really do. We're not a, a narrative show. We're more like this historical, contextual, and then, you know, apply it to the modern framework type of show. Talking about something as kind of nebulous as the complicity of the Democratic Party and the grand design of things is difficult. I feel like I could do it more in like a, if this was a talk show format. So I'd have to find a few different angles into this, Kevin, but I think it really is a worthwhile pursuit for me to spend some time on, on, on talking about it. So thank you for that suggestion and framing. Cliff W. said, I know you did an episode on different isms, but hope you could revisit the subject of fascism. I'm also ready to hear why you felt Obama falls into the fascism camp. Yeah, Cliff is an on-again, off-again, on-again, off-again 
on again listener to the show who we have tweaked at, at various times. One with a very callous uh, reference that I made to Christianity that I actually then apologized for. Cliff, you may not know this, but in a subsequent episode to that, it was like the most flippant thing that I had said on the show and I apologized for it a, a week later. And the other thing was when I referred to Obama as a fascist. I am absolutely prepared to continue to back that up. I don't think I called him a straight up fascist, but had fascist tendencies on a handful of measures. That in conjunction with the whitewashing and actually the, the you talk about shifting the Overton window in the democratic sector, it's shifted so far to the right that we no longer recognize it. So maybe between your suggestion and Kevin's suggestion, we actually have something there as a framework for a show on Democrats. Elijah said, thanks for the time and energy making uh, the podcast. I'm a 35-year-old Army veteran that wishes everyone would listen to UNFTR and start discussions from that point. We'll appreciate your service. And I don't say that lightly with any sort of hollow remarks behind it or any hollow feelings behind it. I truly do, Elijah. And thank you for being open to listen to UNFTR. Said, I really appreciate you don't hide your humanity while striving to keep your identity hidden, to keep the focus off of one person. Thank you again. I know this is rather rambling and not linear, but I feel like being an unfucker, this is the perfect place for me. Uh, You're in the right place, Elijah, and welcome. And lastly, we had a a review from Hamnet1732. Found you through Pitchfork, and while the love is still there, UNFTR has far surpassed any podcast anywhere. Thank you so much for uh, sending us that review. Anybody that wants to leave us a review would certainly be welcomed. And uh, 99? Yeah, so you can now leave ratings on Spotify, which is super cool. We already have a nice five-star rating there with a handful of ratings, which is amazing. But head over to Spotify. I actually tried to rate a show, and I don't use Spotify as my main platform, and they wouldn't let me rate it because I hadn't listened to it on there. So I thought that was pretty cool. So you're getting kind of integrity-based ratings there. Oh, that is cool. Yeah. Okay. But uh, listen, you know, stream an episode, scrub through it on Spotify, and then let's, let's flood it over there. Yeah, let's do that thing, unfuckers. As always, Unfucking the Republic is edited and arranged by Manny Faces Media. Well, we got the room all decorated, so where's the big surprise? Right there. Hey, I know who that is. It's Manny Faces. Manny agreed to be our entertainment for the party tonight. For the party tonight. For the party tonight. The show is lovingly produced by the great and powerful 99. You broke your promise to me, and we didn't talk about Vermin Supreme. Or Love Supreme. <laughs> I'm just going to keep saying that every time you say Vermin Supreme. Love Supreme. Love Supreme. No, I'm mad at you. Is Vermin, okay, is Vermin Supreme going to be the art this week for the show? Well, we didn't talk about him. We're talking so, about him right now? I mean, I guess, but I'd have to make this like the little featured snippet I share for it to make sense. Our theme music was composed by Tom McGovern. Visit TomMcGovern.com. The show is hosted by Bear's Son and distributed by Bluebirds. Send us your comments, your questions, your suggestions to UNFTRPod at gmail.com. Connect with us on social at UNFTRPod. Become a member at buymeacoffee.com slash UNFTR. Visit our book list at bookshop.org slash shop slash UNFTRPod. Get some native roasted coffee at UNFTR.com slash shop and read our essays on Substack because those motherfuckers will always be free. Peace out, 99. Peace out. Oh, and even though they originally... Oh, and even though they originally crafted the... Oh, and even though they originally crafted... Fuck. Hey now, I don't know what you're talking about. This is just my normal voice. I can't help it if it comes across in a sexy way.